After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crack of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The man said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow him allowed them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hands on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your rope in my hand. I cut off the corner of your rope, but did not kill you. See that there's nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And the old saying goes, From evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe up my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Good morning, church. My name is Darren, if I haven't uh, met you before. It's a, it's a great story. Please keep that passage in front of you, and hopefully we'll see the more application than just to buy a pair of shoes uh, from me this morning. And let me pray for us as we begin. Father, thank you for your word. We pray as your church we would hear it, we would see Jesus, and we would grow, Lord, not, not just in number as a church, but, but in depth and in love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, Humphrey Bogart in the legendary 1942 film Casablanca, when Ingrid Bergman walked into his club Ricks, what did he say? Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Uh, A stunning matter of coincidence. And well, today's passage is not too different from that. Uh, Not two people meeting in a nightclub in Morocco, uh, but two kings who met in a cave in the En Gedi in Israel, a a, a meeting that was of such striking coincidence that the men even thought it had come from God. It is a story that is dripping in drama, but crucially, and I think more helpfully for us, there's so much application for us in terms of how we view justice, how we conduct ourselves, our obedience. Um, There's so much here, folks, and we're just going to follow the narrative today uh, to keep us on track as we continue our teaching in David. And we're going to see three things. We're going to see David's test, we're going to see David's uh, innocence, and we're going to see Saul's uh, confession. And David is a king who's, who's on the run. He's on the run as a fugitive. He's a king in exile, and things are looking rather bad, I have to say. Uh, he's outnumbered five to one uh, by Saul and his men. Uh, 3,000 crack unit squad that Saul has sent to find him and murder him. We know what's happened to Saul, where he's at. He's just murdered 85 priests for giving David some food. It tells you everything we need to know about him. But now uh, he has gotten word of where David is, and the circle, the net, is closing in on King uh, David. It's an altogether tense affair. It's so tense, in fact, you can read about it. David wrote songs about it in Psalm 57 and Psalm 142, being on the run from Saul. And he writes things that his enemies were pursuing him like beasts. And yet, even though he was being pursued and hunted for his life, uh, he could call on the Lord as his refuge, even in the darkness of a cave. And while the author of Samuel, he doesn't want to dwell too much on this exciting fugitive hunt. And I want to be very careful in saying, imagine the scene, or to say to you this morning, enter the world of the text. Um, Because, quite frankly, we see that even tyrants need to relieve themselves. And uh, out of all the caves in all the En Gedi, in all of Israel, King Saul had to walk in to David's. He enters this cave to relieve himself. And uh, David and 600 of his men They're hiding, they're huddling at the back. Uh, We know now that the ESV translation stands for the English sanitized version. But the scene is striking. There's 3,000 men between David and the king and King Saul with his trousers down. You can imagine it, couldn't you? I bet they couldn't believe their luck. Here was their enemy, here was their pursuant, exposed and vulnerable and entirely at the mercy of David and his men. Uh, we, we, we know this because the men turn to David and they say, yes, this is surely the day the Lord has said that he will give your enemy into our hands. They're so confident, this seems so logical that they're even making up scripture and quoting scripture that was never written. Uh, God had never said this to David, in fact. 
And while Hollywood movies, they love to have a punch-up or a fight scene in a public toilet, what does David do? Well, rather skillfully, he takes his sword and he stealths over to King Saul. And with tremendous skill, he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, the theologians, they can only hotly debate whether Saul had taken his robe on or whether whether he'd taken it off or he'd kept it on. Uh, But what we are told is that David takes this piece of cloth back to his men. And we're told something rather interesting in verse 5. His heart was struck. The direct translation is he was hit by his conscience. The law of God was on his heart. And why? Why would it? Why would he feel this way? Why would he feel so grieved? This would have been a very, could have been logical. You, you could have forgiven him for doing this. Well, of course, we know if, if you've been following us that robes carry a lot of significance, especially in Samuel. And when Samuel and Saul had departed from one another, Samuel's uh, robe had been torn as a sign that the kingdom was going away uh, from Saul and moving to David. And here, David, taking a corner of Saul's robe, it was a sign Uh, that the kingdom was going to him. And David realized in this test how close he had come to taking the kingdom and the crown for himself through violence and murder and bloodshed. And rather poetically, we're told, as he returns to his men with this piece of fabric, as he'd torn it, we're told he tore into his men. Uh, It's very poetic. As he says to them, forbid that I would stretch out my hand against my master. David has been nothing but loyal and faithful to Saul, and now he realizes how close he had just come to killing the Lord's anointed. This was one of the many tests of David. And I think a helpful way to understand it is uh, perhaps those of us who, or if if you're familiar with the military service or those in the uniformed organizations, uh, you perhaps you don't always want to salute uh, those above you. Uh, You don't want to respect the person but you have to respect the office, and you have to respect the rank. And here David is being challenged and tested. Would he use worldly means to achieve godly ends, or would he respect the office that God had put in place over him? One of the things I quite enjoy of having digital television in Hong Kong is you can skip through all the things you don't like. Uh, You can skip through all of the analysis, and you can just get straight to the sports highlights. You can skip through uh, the adverts. Um, But I was thinking about this for David, and for many of us, would you like your life to be like digital TV? You know, you can just get the remote, and you can just fast forward a few months or a few years where things just feel really tough. You see, for David, what was in front of him was the opportunity that he could hit fast forward. He could skip through the suffering. He could skip through being a fugitive and a hardship, and he could get the throne and the crown that very day. But what David knew was that this was not God's way, nor was it God's plan or how God wanted his people to act. And yet there'll be many of us where we're going through a challenge, we're going through a circumstance this morning, and we just wish we could hit fast forward on the remote. The challenge for us perhaps today is to to think how these circumstances could be used by God to shape us or or to teach us. And oh, St. Andrews, I wish there was another way at times, but but I promise you, with God, and if you turn to God in your circumstances, nothing will ever be wasted. David was going to be the king. He was going to be God's king. But he had to go through this circumstance and this trial first to be the man that God wanted him to be. 
And yet for others of us here today, there will be not so much a a temptation that we want to fast forward in our life, but we're, we're just tempted to cut corners that are costing us our godliness. We're, we're tempted to cut corners when it comes to our obedience and how we want to, to, follow, to follow God. And like David, it is wounding our consciousness. It is striking us. Uh, I was chatting to someone this week who said, if I was really honest about a deal I had done in business, it would cost me an eight-figure sum. If I was really honest about my taxes, it would cost me an eight-figure sum. What, what, what do I do, Pastor? Uh, there will be challenges in business uh, to cut corners. There will be challenges for many of us in our relationships. Many of us are married, and marriage just feels so hard at times, and you're tempted to just let that relationship or that friendship blossom with someone else just to enjoy some, some comfort. Uh, I know our young people, many of them, struggle with the weight and the pressure to date non-Christians. Or, or, or just the logic, like David's men, they thought this was logical, uh, the attraction of the world, uh, things like premarital sex, they just seem so obvious and so good, and yet we know it is not God's way, and it wounds us, it, it disturbs us, it, it grieves us, um, and our conscience can, can wound us. What David shows us, I think, today is as Christians, don't cut the corner Put God first. Uh, we want our church to grow in number, but we also want our church to grow in depth and maturity, and that will require the hard heart work of obedience, of following Jesus and, and his word. Uh, we need to address this. And of course, we know that, that these issues, this is nothing new, is it? Putting God first. Uh, uh, when, what, what did Satan tell Eve right at the start? She said, uh, he said to her, you know, yeah, eat the apple and be like God. Uh, take the shortcut or Jesus, before his public ministry, what did he do? He entered the desert for 40 days, and Satan tempted him and said, all of this can be yours. All of the nations, Jesus, can be yours today if you would only bow down and worship me. Except the problem was, as we know, that Jesus had already been promised the nations. God had said to Jesus, they will be your inheritance but the path that Jesus had to go through was through the garden and through the cross. The shortcut that he was being tempted to avoid was to get the nations, to get the nations today, to get the glory today, but to avoid the cross. David was tempted to avoid the hardship and to get the crown. And thankfully, Jesus, our second Adam, he was faithful. He did not take the shortcut so that he could be our wonderful Savior. That David went through the test and, and he foreshadowed Jesus' obedience. But we also see David's innocence and we see David's view of justice. He reprieves Saul. He stays his men. Saul goes on his way. And then in this very um, cinematic scene, David comes out to the entrance of the cave in the sunshine and he calls out, my Lord, my Lord. And uh, if you know anything about Old Testament narrative, you know it's the speech that is always at the heart of the story. And he says to Saul very carefully, why do you listen to those who say, I am against you? He's been very careful. He's saving face for Saul. For if you've read Samuel, you know that no one has said that David is against Saul. The only person that is saying David against, is against Saul is Saul himself from his own envy and confusion. And in this rather cinematic scene, David gets down on his face. He's waving up the piece of cloth. Saul's probably thinking, my goodness, my robes, where have half of them gone? And he sees that the Lord has, David says, that the Lord put you into my hands. 
now do you see that I'm innocent? That's what David's getting at. That's what he's driving at. The men said, I had to kill you, but I said I would not harm the Lord's anointed. What he's really saying is there's no wrongdoing here. There's no rebellion in my heart. I have never been against you, Saul. I am not evil. And then in that striking sentence, he turns the tables from evildoers come evil deeds. A theme throughout the scriptures that we are not to repay evil with evil, but to repay evil with good. And how can David do this? How can David be so innocent? How can David act so justly? Because crucially and very maturely, he knows that justice belongs to the Lord. He says, may the Lord judge between you and and judge between me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. What David shows us is that judgment can only ever be rightly understood in the hands and in the lens of God. As Paul develops this, this thought in the book of Romans, he says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay now, that word room in Romans, it, it actually means field. It's saying that the Lord's field is judgment. And this can be an uncomfortable thought for us. A, most, a lot of churches don't even want to talk about this anymore. We prefer to just talk about God's love. Uh, but I, I think this is so crucial and so important if you want to be a mature Christian. Uh, C.S. Lewis developed this thought in his famous book, God in the Dock. He argues how we judge over God. We judge God's word. We judge God's motives. We judge God's existence. Anything except to acknowledge that God might ever judge us. It is so painfully postmodern. And the Bible, well, the Bible gives us a different perspective. It says that God is the final judge, and God will have the final and the correct word for all that is wrong in the world. And if you are a Christian, can I tell you that judgment is a good idea. We should look forward to it. A day when God will put all that is wrong, he will very carefully make it right. Not some sort of out of control anger or or rage, but God's careful and perfect and rightful disdain of all that is wrong and all that is evil in the world. Things in history that have gone wrong, things in history that have gone wrong to you. Uh, Perhaps you have been wronged, and and perhaps even the person who wronged you is no longer even alive anymore. And you just wonder, will there ever be justice? Or for the tyrants of the world, or tyrants like Saul, will the truth ever come out? Will, 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 Will justice ever come to bear? Well, the Bible shows us that for for God to be gracious, for God to be loving, it requires him to serve justice. It it, it is required and demanded by his love. He will make everything right one day, and he will put all that that is wrong in the world, um, he will make it right. And and this, I feel, is a tremendously liberating doctrine, um, because it it would just be exhausting if it was down to you or I to seek justice for the world, It would be exhausting, it would tire us out, and we would probably get it wrong. Now, you see it so often, people trying to seek justice without God. Now, of course, there will be times when you must speak out. There will be times when it will be hard to do the the right thing to stand up for justice. There will be times when you, you, you might even need to report a crime. But what the Bible gives us is a very helpful perspective that we do what we can We try to live good lives, and we leave the rest to God. We can trust him, 
And that helps me sleep at night. It is the cure for anxiety that the burden does not lie with me, but God has got the world in his hands and he is going to fix things one day. And uh, there is proof that this judgment is going to happen. Paul tells us in the book of Acts that it's because he has raised Jesus from the dead. And if he has raised Jesus from the dead, we have, why would not we believe that he is going to return to judge the world? And it helpfully, well, it shows us also why we need a savior. And uh, we finally, our final point is called Saul's Confession. And we see how Paul misses uh, the, the savior and the truth that is before him. He's struck to the heart, we are told. He weeps aloud. He says, you are more righteous than I. He knows perhaps that he's just dodged a bullet. Uh, He's perhaps realized he's only wearing half of his robe. Uh, Perhaps he feels relief. I'm sure he feels rebuked. He's shocked as he's hit by the truth, as he knows that David is innocent, and he is the one who has been acting evilly against David. He says, I did evil to you, but you did good to me. And finally, the admission that the writing is on the wall, that you will be king one day. So please, will you spare my family? And I think this passage has tremendous warning for us, for it shows us two kings. It shows us a king who knew that justice belonged to the Lord so he could trust him, that God was going to do it, and a king who would not repent, who would not turn back to God. And I think this is striking. For it, Clearly, Saul is in deep sorrow here. But it shows us that, true, that deep sorrow is no sign of true repentance. Saul has been hit by the truth. He's been presented by the truth. But he still cannot do the right thing. There are two kings. One king has acknowledged the kingship of God. And the other is the king Saul who cannot let go of his crown. And many of us, we have to make that choice this morning. There is a little king inside each and every one of us. And we have to say, does the crown belong to God? Is God going to set the agenda for my life? Am I going to obey him? Or am I going to hold on to the crown like Saul? We hear this and we have a choice. We can be deeply sorrowful like Saul, but it is no sign of true repentance and doing the right thing and obedience to our master. And well, you see, this judgment, this idea of judgment that we've just discussed, as wonderful as it is, and how it gives us hope in hard times, uh, the, the downside of it is that it shows us our need for a Savior. It shows us our need for a Savior. And Jesus, as, as we heard, if he had taken the shortcut, he could, have never, he could have never been the Savior that you and I need. But we know what Jesus did, don't we? We know that he went to the cross, he went to the garden, he prayed on his knees and he said, take this cup from me if it is your will, Father. But he didn't. And he stayed and he went to the cross and he drank the cup of God's wrath. He drank the cup of God's judgment so that you and I would never need to face it, so that you and I would never need to drink or taste judgment ever again. And the great promise that if we turn back to God in repentance, if we acknowledge our sins, we too can be forgiven and spare judgment. So my hope and my prayer today is not to buy a pair of shoes, but that you would see Jesus who did not take the shortcut. So we can say like him, not my will, but your will be done, Father. And that is the answer. That is how you can stop doing evil and start doing good. Not, not to earn God's salvation, but in response to it, we stop doing evil and we start doing good. Even when it's hard, we put God first.
because we have a wonderful Savior and we need never taste judgment. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the model of David who didn't cut the corner and how he shows us Jesus, the one who who would not bow down to evil, Lord, but went to the cross lovingly so that we would never taste or drink judgment. I pray, Father, that we could see him clearly today and grow in our love and knowledge of him. And for those of us, Lord, who are just struggling, where our consciences are wounding us, I pray, Father, that we we could graciously get right with you today and start following and walking in the paths and the roads which you call us all to here at St. Andrews. In Jesus' name, amen.